This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. The gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about risk. So let's talk about um, rock climbing with a rope. Is it fair to say that it's relatively safe to do that? Yeah, climbing with a rope is fundamentally safe. Uh, you know, the gear is designed to keep you safe. This is Alex Honnold, and he would know. My name is Alex Honnold, and I'm a professional rock climber. So just like when anyone listening like sees people rock climbing, and there's somebody at the bottom holding a rope. If they slipped and they fell, what would happen? So they would basically fall double the distance to the last piece of gear that they'd clipped. So as they're going, every couple feet, they clip their rope into another piece of gear. And then if they fall, then the person down below holding the other end of the rope serves as a counterweight and basically catches them. And so, you know, in general, climbing with a rope should be quite safe. All right, so we've established what rope climbing is. What is, um, what's free soloing? So free soloing is climbing without a rope, without equipment, without a partner. So you're just using your hands and feet to just climb up a vertical rock face. And just to be clear, without ropes means if you fall, you die. Yeah, that's that's pretty much exactly what it means. Can you explain how you transitioned from looking at a, a rock wall and saying, can you hold the rope and like latch me in to saying, okay, I'm going to climb this like Spider-Man. Like how did you <laughs> even get to the idea of wanting to do that. Part of the appeal was just the practical side of it, that you don't need a partner and you don't need to schedule with anybody. You can just mm-hmm. go to a wall and go right. climbing. Right. But then I've also always sort of appreciated the way that you can test yourself soloing, I suppose. You know, it's just higher consequence, so it forces you to perform at a higher level. Now, Alex has definitely had the opportunity to test himself as a climber. He's actually the subject of a documentary called Free Solo. It's about his quest to become the first person to climb El Capitan in Yosemite with no ropes. But Alex's career as a climber started way before that. Here's more from Alex Honnold on the TED stage. So I started climbing in a gym when I was around 10 years old. I made the transition to the outdoors and gradually started free soloing. There have been many free solos before me, so I had plenty of inspiration to draw from. But by 2008, I'd repeated most of their previous solos in Yosemite and was starting to imagine breaking into new terrain. The obvious first choice was Half Dome, an iconic 2,000-foot wall that lords over the east end of the valley. The problem, though also the allure, was that it was too big. I didn't really know how to prepare for potential free solo. I did at least climb the route roped up with a friend two days before, just to make sure that I knew roughly where to go and that I could physically do it. But when I came back by myself two days later, I knew that there was a 300-foot variation that circled around one of the hardest parts of the climb. I suddenly decided to skip the hard part and take the variation, even though I'd never climbed it before. But I immediately began to doubt myself. I was slightly rattled, because I knew that all the hardest climbing was up at the top. I needed to stay composed. It was a beautiful September morning, and as I climbed higher, I could hear the sounds of tourists chatting and laughing on the summit. But between me and the summit lay a blank slab of granite. There were no cracks or edges to hold onto. I had to trust my life to the friction between my climbing shoes and the smooth granite. I carefully balanced my way upward, but then I reached a foothold that I didn't quite trust. I considered a foot further to the side, but seemed worse. I switched my feet and tried a foot further out. It seemed even worse. I started to panic. I knew what I had to do, but I was just too afraid to do it. I just had to stand up on my right foot. And so, after what felt like an eternity, I accepted what I had to do. And it didn't slip, and so I didn't die. And that move marked the end of the hardest climbing. And so I charged from there towards the summit. And so normally, when you summit half dome, you have a rope and a bunch of climbing gear on you and tourists gasp and they flock around you for photos. This time, I popped over the edge shirtless, panting, jacked. I was amped, but nobody batted an eye. (laughs) I took off my tight climbing shoes and started hiking back down, and that's when people stopped me. You're hiking barefoot? That's so hardcore. (laughs) I'd succeeded in the solo, and it was celebrated as a big first in climbing but I was unsatisfied. I was disappointed in my performance because I knew that I'd gotten away with something. 
I actually took the next year or so off from free soloing because I knew that I shouldn't make a habit of relying on luck. I didn't want to be a lucky climber. I wanted to be a great climber. Do you consider yourself to be a risk taker in general? No. I hate gambling. I hate games of chance. I don't, you know. I mean, a lot of people, when they talk about risk, it's like it's okay to fail, particularly with financial risk. People take financial risk because the upside outweighs the downside. But with free soloing, it's not like that because the downside is, is infinite, basically. I mean, death is, is a very big downside. You know, I'm really making sure that that chance is at zero, you know. We often celebrate people who take risks, whether it's in business or science or in sports. We admire people who seem bold enough to do things that, for most of us, are uncomfortable or even terrifying. So on the show today, we're going to explore ideas about risk, why some people seem to embrace it and others seem to run away from it, and whether it might be possible to reduce or actually eliminate risk through careful planning and preparation. And when it comes to climbing, Alex Honnold thinks you can. I mean, a lot of people sort of conflate risk with the consequences. You know, people look at free soloing and they're like, oh, that's very risky. But, you know, the risk is the likelihood that something bad is actually going to happen. You know, the consequences are what will actually happen if something bad occurs. So, I mean, with free soloing, the consequences are always really high. But sometimes the climbing is super easy, so the risk is really, really low because there's basically no chance that you would fall off. Climbing with a rope is a largely physical effort. You just have to be strong enough to hold on and make the movements upward. But free soloing plays out more in the mind. Your body is still climbing the same wall. But staying calm and performing at your best when you know that any mistake could mean death requires a certain kind of mindset. <laughs> That's not supposed to be funny, but, but it is. It is. <laughs> I work to cultivate that mindset through visualization, which basically just means imagining the entire experience of soloing the wall. I'd already started to think about El Cap. It was always in the back of my mind as the obvious crown jewel of solos. Each year for the next seven years, I'd think, this is the year that I'm going to solo El Cap. And then I would drive in Yosemite, look up at the wall, and think, no freaking way. It was, <laughs> it's too big and too scary. The thing that makes El Cap so intimidating is the sheer scale of the wall. Most climbers take three to five days to ascend the 3,000 feet of vertical granite. The idea of setting out up a wall of that size with nothing but shoes and a chalk bag seemed impossible. But eventually I came to accept that I wanted to test myself against El Cap. It represented true mastery. But I needed it to feel different. I didn't want to get away with anything or barely squeak by. This time I wanted to do it right. So when you started preparing to, to free solo El Capitan, what was that like? What was the training like? So the training for El Cap was varied. I mean, it kind of split into the physical and mental side of it. The physical side of it came down to base fitness required, you know, being able to actually climb a wall like that. And that's pretty easy to train for just by going climbing all the time and making sure that I felt strong. And then there was the more specific side of it, being able to physically do all the moves on El Cap. And so that meant practicing the individual moves, memorizing the moves. I would think through specifically the sequences, and, and I would often sort of make mental to-do lists of like, okay, this move feels weird, I should see if there's a way around it or if there's another way to do it. And so I'd constantly be thinking about the nitty-gritty of the route like that. And then there's the more general mental side of it, of do I believe that it's possible? You know, is this something that I can actually do? Am I confident doing this? The mental side of it is a lot more nebulous because that basically came down to all the time sitting in the van by myself, imagining and thinking and daydreaming. And it's a very all-consuming process. You know, my whole life was immersed in El Cap. So by the time you got to El Capitan, you knew exactly where each hand and each foot was going to go over the course of that climb? Yeah, for sure. So it was like a, a computer algorithm in your brain that like you had programmed this over time and then the code was like embedded in your brain and you were just, it I mean, was I, like I, you were. Yeah, though I'd, I'd rather think of it as like a choreographed dance or something. You know, when you start talking about programming code, I'm like, right. oh, that's, because right. there, there is a certain beauty to the movement and like fluidity to it, but that's, a, that's exactly it. Uh, I mean, by the time I've actually set out to free soul the wall, I'd put so much effort into the preparation that I felt like I'd mitigated all possible risk. After two seasons of working specifically toward a potential free solo of El Cap, I finally finished all my preparations. I knew every handhold and foothold on the whole route, and I knew exactly what to do. The most difficult part of the whole route was called the boulder problem. It was about 2,000 feet off the ground and consisted of the hardest physical moves on the whole route. 
long poles between poor handholds with very small, slippery feet. But that wasn't even the hardest part. The crux culminated in a karate kick with my left foot over to the inside of an adjacent corner, a maneuver that required a high degree of precision and flexibility, enough so that I'd been doing a nightly stretching routine for a full year ahead of time to make sure that I could comfortably make the reach with my leg. Basically, I was ready. It was time to solo El Cap. On June 3rd, 2017, I woke up early and made it to the base of the wall before sunrise. I felt confident as I looked over the wall, and felt even better as I started climbing. About 500 feet up, I reached a slab very similar to the one that had given me so much trouble on Half Dome, but this time was different. I scouted every option, including hundreds of feet of wall to either side, and I knew exactly what to do and how to do it. I had no doubts. I just climbed right through. Even the difficult and strenuous sections passed by with ease. I was perfectly executing my routine. I rested for a moment below the boulder problem, and then climbed it just as I had practiced so many times with the rope on. My foot shot across to the wall on the left without hesitation, and I knew that I'd done it. I climbed with a smooth precision and enjoyed the sounds of the birds swooping around the cliff. And then I reached the summit after three hours and 56 minutes of glorious climbing. It was the climb that I wanted, and it felt like mastery. It sounds like in this case. The way you kind of chipped away at the risk and also at the fear was by practicing again and again and again, and it just—it sounds like it kind of just like ground down that anxiety and any real sense of risk. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, on that particular day, I didn't feel like there was any risk. You know, I mean, that that the day that I freestyled our cap was the culmination of of years of effort and. I think that、uh, practice always desensitizes you to things. I mean, I think that's kind of the only real way to broaden your comfort zone is to just slowly push. You know, just to keep on pushing at the edge of it until eventually you're pretty comfortable with things that you weren't before. But I mean, that's the thing. Like to me, like this is the key point that when you are so prepared, the risk side of it is just it might still be there, but it's less scary. It's less intimidating. To be fair, I mean, I also spent years looking up at El Cap, thinking that's insane, that's impossible. And and since then, I mean, I've spent a ton of time in Yosemite since I freestyled El Cap. And when I look at El Cap now, you know, even knowing that I have freestyled the wall, it still doesn't look like something that I could just go and freestyle. You know, when I look at the wall right now, I think, oh, you know, I definitely should not freestyle. That would be much too risky. You know, but then with years of of practice and training and you know just this whole long process, eventually. You know, on that one day, I could look at the wall and think, "Oh yeah, you know, that's going to be great today." That's Alex Honnold. He holds the world's record for the tallest free solo climb in history. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about risk. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone! Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to National Car Rental, the car rental company where signing up for complimentary membership in the National Emerald Club means you can skip the counter and choose any car in the aisle at participating national locations, all with the speed, choice, and control that lets you be the boss of you, like it should be. Go national and go like a pro. Learn more at nationalcar.com/npr. Thanks also to E-Trade. Investing your money shouldn't require moving mountains, no matter how much or how little experience you have. E-Trade makes investing simpler, and for a limited time, get $100 when you open a new account with just $5,000. It's all about helping your money work hard for you. For more information, visit etrade.com/learnmore. E-Trade Securities LLC, member SIPC. News breaks and big stories change every day. That's why we're giving you NPR's 10-minute morning news podcast on Saturdays too. I'm Scott Simon, and I'm Lulu Garcia Navarro. Up first, start your day with us weekdays at six Eastern and Saturdays at eight. A bit later to suit your weekend from NPR News. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, ideas about risk. I tend to be risk averse. Is that just a fixed、uh, <laughs> like thing that some people are and some people aren't? 
So I think whether you're risk-loving or risk-averse, that seems to be fairly hardwired in the sense that it's there's a heritable element. Whereas risk intelligence is all about how good people are at estimating probabilities. This is Dylan Evans. He's a behavioral scientist, and he studies why some people are better when it comes to taking risks. Someone who's risk intelligent is capable of gathering a wide range of information, not approaching the information with fixed theories, but willing to constantly update and modify their beliefs. This is one thing, interestingly, about professional gamblers, is that they make quite good decisions. Dylan Evans picks up his idea from the TED stage. I've spent the last few years interviewing some of the most successful gamblers in the world. And it's not just because I like spending my time in casinos. I've got a hunch that there's a special kind of intelligence for thinking about risk and uncertainty. So if psychologists study gamblers at all, they tend to focus exclusively on problem gamblers. But that's like studying obesity and neglecting haute cuisine, or studying alcoholism and neglecting fine wines. Not all gamblers are fools. Some of them are experts. And I think we can all learn a lot about how to make better decisions by studying the way these expert gamblers think. So what is the, in your view, like the biggest misconception that most of us have about gamblers? Because I think most of us just assume that gambling is, is just about chance and luck. Yes. Well, a lot of gambling is just about luck. But I think the professional gamblers that I've talked to, it's not the individual wins that thrill them. It's a much more cognitive pleasure of figuring out the rules of this particular challenge, gathering the data, processing it almost like a scientist would. And there are still a few games where there is still room for skill. Blackjack, poker, sports betting. And by sports betting, I mean horse racing, betting on football or soccer, any of the kind of traditional racing games. But I think the, the area where we see risk intelligence at its most developed is the sports betting, because there we're talking about a system which is much more open-ended. We're talking about real people or animals, which much more complicated than the rules of a game in a casino. And what got me interested in this group was a fascinating paper I read some time ago by two American psychologists called Stephen Sessi and Jeffrey Leiker. Back in the 1980s, fresh out of grad school, they visited a horse racing venue in Delaware, and they interviewed 30 avid racetrack patrons men, they were all men, they went to the racetrack every day of their working lives, they didn't make their money from gambling, it was just fun, but they were absolutely obsessed with it. And 14 of them were just incredibly good at forecasting the odds, the final odds that would be offered on the horses just prior to the race, which is a pretty good guide to the probability of the horse actually winning. So over the course of four years, Sessi and Leica figured out that the best way to model what the expert gamblers were doing when they were thinking about predicting the horse's chance of winning the race was to model it as a complex linear equation consisting of seven variables, each of which related to the horse's performance in previous races, like its average speed, its uh, average uh, finishing position, and so on. But, of course, these expert gamblers, they didn't know anything about linear regression. They'd never heard of statistical modeling. They were doing it all unconsciously. So take me to a racetrack, right? You have a pretty good ability to assess risk, and you've got $100 to spend. What are you going to do? Well, first of all, I would have done my homework before I even set foot into the racetrack. I would have studied the form of the horses, how many races they'd won, the races that they'd come second and third in, also the horse's preference for different kinds of ground, hard ground or soft ground. You're looking at the jockey, the accumulated winnings of a particular horse. 
on the basis of that, you want to come out with some initial idea of what the horse's chances are of winning a race. But that's not enough because it's not necessarily looking for the horse that's going to win the race. You're looking for the horse that the other players have underestimated. Why do you think that risk intelligence you know, is easy for some people and some people just ignore it or don't even consider it? Well, above all, it's about being fiercely honest with yourself. The really amazing risk takers, they understand their own weaknesses. They keep very detailed records of their own performance and they look at where they've got things wrong and they learn from those mistakes. Wow. Not just when they're assessing their own performance, but when they're dealing with other people as well. So... Is there a way to kind of increase our confidence when we're taking risks? I mean, is it about, is it as simple as gathering information? It's about gathering as wide a range of information as we can. That's why people have, when they get good at risk intelligence, it tends to be in a very particular domain. So you might be very good at assessing political events, but you might be very bad at medical risks because you need to spend a long time, years, perhaps decades, immersing yourself in a certain domain in order to gather the domain expertise and build this model inside your head. Hmm. Do, do you think that people take risks based on how much they're willing to lose? So one of the key elements that you're thinking about when you make a decision about risk is your possible gains and the likelihood of those gains. You have to take into account your possible losses and the likelihood of those losses. Someone who's risk intelligent weighs those things up equally. They don't have a particular aversion to loss, but with the important proviso that they never risk so much that they can't bet again, because then you're really out of the game. So I want to finish off by just describing simple ways in which you can use probabilities when making your decisions. The first way is simply to set a threshold. So for example, you might say, well, I'm only going to ask this person out on a date if I think that there's a 60% chance that they will say yes. And the great thing about this method is, of course, that everybody can set their thresholds differently at different levels, depending on how desperate you are to go on a date <laughs> and, and how much you hate being rejected. The second is betting an amount that is proportional to your confidence. So for example, you could decide to buy more or less shares in a, various companies depending on how strongly you believe that each company was going to do well. Overconfidence is going to be fatal here. Now, of course, luck can always go against you. There's no guarantee that even if you use these decision-making methods, that you'll always win. But if that thought upsets you, make your peace with chance. Just accept that you can't control her. Accept that she doesn't care about you, and she never will. But don't despair. That's the way to bet. Thank you. <laughs> That's Dylan Evans. He's a behavioral psychologist and the author of the book, Risk Intelligence. You can see his entire talk at ted.npr.org. By the way, are you a gambler at all? I have um, tried gambling in casinos when I was doing the research for my book, but uh, I think I could really do with some risk trading myself. So clearly there are different kinds of risks, some that are intelligent and others not so much. Guys, it is Lorenzo. We are back with another prank. This time we're doing the Tide Pod Taste Challenge. We have is it true that, that there are videos of teenagers eating Tide Pods? Yeah, that was this weird phenomenon that was going on my senior year of high school. There'd be kids doing the Tide Pod Challenge. So wait, like what are they actually doing? Basically, since Tide Pods like kind of look like candy and are colorful, kids would eat them and then film themselves doing so and post that on YouTube. So we picked up some Tide Pods and we're about to become YouTube famous. So oh, I'm going to try one. Try one, bro. Take a bite. Should I? Yeah, why not? Dude. Ew. Bro, it's like poison. <laughs> Is it? That's crazy. That's like toxic. Yeah. This is Kashfia Rahman, 
I'm a student at Harvard University studying psychology and neuroscience. Kashfia has never herself taken the Tide Pod Challenge, but she is fascinated by her friends who take those kinds of risks. Kids who are binge drinking, drunk driving, making bad choices in social situations, peer pressure. Yeah. Kashfia grew up in Brookings, South Dakota. I lived in a college town, about 25,000 people, so a pretty small town. Being in South Dakota, it's obvious that there wasn't much to do to entertain yourself. A lot of times, kids would turn to things like drugs and alcohol and risk-taking in order to get rid of boredom. But these were smart kids. They were, you know, in honors and advanced classes. Perfectly, like, friendly people were doing these outrageous things. And that was the first spark. The first spark to conduct an experiment about teenagers and risk. Right, exactly. So I think it's like a universally known truth that teenagers are reckless and risky. And they're just the changes that occur in the brain at this developmental period are kind of taking the reins when teens are acting out in, in this way. So it's like almost like a, like a zombie brain. Right, exactly. It's almost like a zombie has taken over the teenager's brain and said, now I want you to vape. Here's a jewel pod. Yes, that's, that's a great analogy, honestly, for, for what goes on during this time period. Here's more from Kashfia talking about her research from the TED stage. Now, it's no secret that teens ages 13 to 18 are more prone to risk-taking than children or adults. But what makes them so daring? Do they suddenly become reckless, or is this just a natural phase that they're going through? Well, neuroscientists have already found evidence that the teen brain is still in the process of maturation, and that this makes them exceptionally poor at decision-making, causing them to fall prey to risky behaviors. But in that case, if the maturing brain is to blame, then why are teens more vulnerable than children, even though their brains are more developed than those of children? Also, not all teens in the world take risks at the same level. Are there some other underlying or unintentional causes driving them to risk-taking? Well, this is exactly what I decided to research. So, I founded my research on the basis of a psychological process known as habituation, or simply what we refer to as getting used to it. Habituation explains how our brains adapt to some behaviors like lying with repeated exposures. And this concept inspired me to design a project to determine if the same principle could be applied to the relentless rise of risk-taking in teenagers. In short, I wanted to conduct a research study to answer one big question. Why do teens keep making outrageous choices that are harmful to their health and well-being? So how, how did you start? So I actually started with kids from my own high school. So like you went up to the to the kids who who binge drink and or swallow Tide Pods and say, "Hey, you know, I noticed that you swallow Tide Pods and binge drink. Can I study you? Is that, was that your approach?" <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't exactly how I went about it. I told my classmates that I wanted to do um, a research project on the interaction between risky behaviors and the teenage brain is how I is how I put it to them. And and did the were there kids who were like chuckling like ha 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 yeah right on or did they were was everyone pretty much like okay yeah cool I'm I'm in. Yeah, so most people were were um, you know, they were in. So, I started the research with 86 students ages 13 to 18 from my high school. I had them complete a computerized decision-making simulation to measure their risk-taking behaviors comparable to ones in the real world, like alcohol use, drug use, and gambling. Wearing the EEG headset, the students completed the task 12 times over three days to mimic repeated risk exposures. This meant that I had measured the process of habituation and its effects on decision-making. And it took 29 days to complete this research. And with months of frantically drafting proposals, meticulously computing data in a caffeinated daze at 2 a.m., I was able to finalize my results. And what did you start to see? Right, so I had them do 12 trials of the simulation, and um, we saw that at the beginning, when they were on their first or second trial, their levels of, you know, nervousness, anxiousness, anxiety, you know, stress, those were, those were high. 
But as you looked at the data for, you know, the later trials, the 10th, 11th, 12th trials, you saw these emotions, these negative emotions that are generally associated with risks decrease. And you saw things like excitement and arousal increase. So let's say there was a teenager who was at a party and a bunch of kids were doing shots of tequila. And that kid said, no way, I'm not getting involved with this. But then they went to the party the next weekend. And again, a bunch of kids were doing shots of tequila and that kid said, no way, I'm not doing it. What you're saying is that by the fifth or sixth time of being exposed to a bunch of other kids doing this, that kid who previously refused to do it would be more likely to try it? Like, that would be the tipping point? Yeah, somewhat like that, because it just becomes so normalized in their in their environment, and they think everyone else is doing it. This is the fifth or sixth time I've seen this, and they'd be unfazed by it and habituated to that kind of risk. So you took your research, and you wrote it into wrote it up into a a paper, right? Right. And then what did you do with it? So, I competed at the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair for 1800 kids from 75 countries. It is my pleasure to be with you today and to be a part of the Intel ICEF 2017 Grand Award Ceremony. And uh, were you nervous where you presented your findings? Yeah. The first place award winners in behavioral and social sciences are from Brookings, South Dakota, Kashfia Rahman. And you won! You won this thing! Yeah, yeah, I got, I got first place in my category. That's amazing! <laughs> so it was completely unexpected, but it was, it was great. I was not only thrilled to have this recognition, but also the whole experience of science fair that validated my efforts keeps my curiosity alive and strengthens my creativity, perseverance, and imagination. This process taught me to take risks, and I know that might sound incredibly ironic, (laughs) but I took risks realizing that unforeseen opportunities often come from risk-taking, not the hazardous negative type that I studied, but the good ones, the positive risks. The more risks I took, the more capable I felt of withstanding my unconventional circumstances, leading to more tolerance, resilience, and patience for completing my project. And these lessons have led me to new ideas. Like, is the opposite of negative risk-taking also true? Can positive risk-taking escalate with repeated exposures? Does positive action build positive brain functioning? I think I just might have my next research idea. That's Kashfia Rahman. She's a student at Harvard studying psychology and neuroscience. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about risk. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to LinkedIn Job Seeker. Looking for the right job can make you feel alone. But what if instead you felt hopeful? There are 20 million jobs on LinkedIn and the people who can help you find them. People who'll give you advice, help you learn new skills, and people who are hiring. On LinkedIn, you're not alone. Find the job meant for you at linkedin.com jobs. Thanks also to Capital One. With the Capital One Walmart Rewards Card, you can earn 5% back at Walmart online, 2% at Walmart in-store, restaurants, and travel, and 1% everywhere else. When you want all that, you need the Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. When a whale dies in the ocean and its body falls down to the seabed, something amazing happens. When they hit that deep sea floor, it's like Thanksgiving. Whale Falls, the science of a deep sea feast. This week on Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. When I say the word risk, what comes to mind? Uncertainty. The word risk and the word uncertainty are connected in my mind because because everything I do is uncertain in a way. This is Ian Firth. 
Basically, I'm a designer. I, I love to design bridges, um, big and small. And when Ian says that, he's being kind of modest. He's actually one of the world's leading bridge engineers. But risk also implies responsibility and reliability. You know, I need to be able to apply a responsible professional approach to managing that risk. And that sense of responsibility is always at the top of Ian's mind. Because thousands of people in cars and trucks and on bikes and trains cross his bridges every single day. I mean, you think about cities like London or New York or Istanbul. Definitely. They could not function without bridges. Like, we don't think about that. The, the bridges have enabled those, those cities and many around the world to become what they've become. Absolutely right. Just about every city in the world, you know, almost every capital city and, and many, many other cities, owe their existence entirely to a bridge across a river. Because, you know, that tends to be the place, certainly when they were establishing those things many hundreds of years ago, that people could get to by boat. Materials, trade, all the kind of transportation and, and trafficking around the world would come there by boat in some shape or form. So bridges became the thing to do. So in London, of course, the Romans built a bridge across the, the River Thames. And you know, every big city owes their existence to a bridge of some sort. And very often also, that bridge has become iconic. I mean, certainly in the Bay Area, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, I mean, which one do you choose? I suppose you have to say Brooklyn Bridge in New York mm. would, would be the sort of iconic structure that then defines the place, the spirit of the place even. And without it, the place doesn't even function. Ian Firth continues his idea from the TED stage. It's hard to imagine a civilization without bridges because they're so essential for growth and development of human society. But they're not just about a safe way across a river or an obstacle. Bridges are enormous features in our landscape, not just enormous, sometimes the small ones, and they are really significant features. And I believe we have a duty to make our bridges beautiful. But technological change happens relatively slowly in my world, believe it or not. And the reason for this can be summarized in one word. Risk. Structural engineers like me manage risk. We are responsible for structural safety. That's what we do. And when we design bridges like these, I have to balance the probability that loads will be excessive on one side or the strength will be uh, too low on the other side, both of which, incidentally, are full of uncertainty, usually. And we have to make sure that there's an adequate margin for safety between the two, of course. But innovation is vital. It's, it, for en as an engineer, it's part of my DNA. It's in my blood. I couldn't be a very good engineer if I wasn't wanting to innovate. But we have to do so from a position of knowledge and strength and understanding. It's no good taking a leap in the dark, and civilization has learned from mistakes since the beginning of time, no one more so than engineers. Because you don't want a bridge to just be functional. You, you want it to be beautiful and innovative, right? Definitely, yeah. I mean, when bridge design began, was beauty a part of, was it baked in as a design element, mm. or was it just a functional thing in the early days? Do you know, I, I hope that human beings throughout time have considered beauty to be something to be celebrated. You know, don't you? I like to think that even the very earliest homo sapiens, you know, the earliest people uh, would have appreciated beauty. Mm. And therefore, when they made something which they felt wanted to be beautiful and didn't just need to be utilitarian, they would shape it and form it in some way. You look at some of the great stone arches that the, the Romans built, they have a majesty about them, they have a, 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 an elegance about them. And so, yes, I, you know, society demands elegance and beauty around them. Mm. Yeah. I mean, but sometimes, right, you, you can take a risk on design that totally backfires. Like, I, I, you mentioned um, the, the collapse of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge um, yes. in, in 1940. Um, and I remember seeing the videos of that. I'm just uh, from your talk, I'm just trying to remember. Was that um, was that an earthquake? No, no, it's wind. It's wind. Oh, wind of course, yeah. What's a, a, a strong but not not extreme wind, uh, which set up this um, this oscillation in the bridge deck. It was a super light bridge, and you know, designer Leon Mosiev really sort of pushed the boundaries too far. Yeah, I mean, there's this 
just infamous video of this bridge, right? And it, it was super narrow, and you could literally see it swaying back and forth before it, it collapsed. It was, it was basically this moment where, I guess, primarily, like, designers looked at this and said, okay, we need to rethink how we how we accept risk, right? I mean, it, because um, the, the designer, Moisef, was taking a huge risk here, right? Yeah. So Moisef was no stranger to long-span bridge design. He'd worked on them before. But here at Tacoma, he was taking that risk of, of, you know, can I make it that much more slender? Obviously, he'd done some analysis. He'd done some calculations. But at that time, 1940, it was a great shock. Everybody was saying, what on earth went wrong? And for 10 years, there was a complete dearth. No big, long bridges built anywhere. (laughs) When most people are on a bridge, they don't think about the possibility that that bridge could collapse. They're just driving across it, and we we take it for granted. I mean, the the bridge is going to be there probably forever, at least in our minds. Mm. But how much Mm. does the risk or risks involved with the bridge factor into how you even approach a blank sheet of paper when you're thinking about where to begin? So the the question of risk is very closely associated with reliability and and confidence. Mm. If you like, confidence and risk are two sides of the same thing. That I design, when I design something, and it's based very largely on knowledge of what works, and that's that's born out of experience. And that experience has involved working through calculations and analysis and so on. So most engineers don't actually ever think about it because all they're doing is applying those formulae. But if they were actually to stop and think about it, everything they deal with in the design of a bridge is uncertain. Everything. <laughs> and so the ending structure, of course, has got a whole lot of uncertainty in it. But collapse, let's be honest, okay, bridge collapse is very rare. Yeah. But everything we design is based on some uncertainty. I mean, even with all of those equations and the testing that's involved, zero risk doesn't exist. This is what this is something that we should all, I guess, um, um, accept that that there is no such thing as a perfectly foolproof bridge. Absolutely. There is no such thing as zero risk, whether we're talking about bridges or anything else. Yeah, right. <laughs> people like to think of it, you know, they say, I don't want any risk on this project, you know, and, uh, you know, you have to say, well, actually, what you mean is you want the risk to be manageable and low enough to be acceptable, you know. So um, what we have to do is to make sure that it's, it's sensible. Our bridges need to be functional, yes. They need to be safe, absolutely. They need to be serviceable and durable. But I passionately believe they need to be elegant, they need to be beautiful. Our bridges are designed for a long time. We tend to design for 100 years plus. They're going to be there for an awfully long time. Nobody's going to remember the cost. Nobody will remember whether it overran a few months. But if it's ugly or just dull, it will always be ugly or dull. Beauty enriches life, doesn't it? It enhances our well-being. Ugliness and mediocrity does exactly the opposite. And if we go on building mediocre, ugly environments, it's something like a large-scale vandalism, which is completely unacceptable. Thank you. That's Ian Firth. He's an engineer and bridge designer. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about who takes risks, especially when it comes to innovation. So think about someone like Steve Jobs for a minute. He's considered to be this brash inventor, the genius behind one of the most innovative consumer products of our time, the iPhone. But is that the whole story? So the real question is what makes the iPhone and similar phones today smart and not stupid? This is economics professor Mariana Mazzucato. And the answer is technologies like the internet, GPS, touchscreen, and Siri. And each and one of those technological changes were invested in by government. So it was DARPA, which is an innovation agency inside the Department of Defense, that invested in both the internet and Siri. It was the Navy that uh, came up with GPS. And the touchscreen display received some early investments actually by the CIA. And what's then extraordinary is that the storytelling around those products like the iPhone and Steve Jobs just simply, you know, don't include that public sector, so government investment. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because 
there's a myth about entrepreneurs and inventors and, you know, sort of the the titans of industry that we lionize, um, that they are brash, fearless risk takers. You know, they jump out of airplanes without parachutes. Um, how much of, of that is true in your view? So I don't even believe in entrepreneurs. I believe in entrepreneurial systems, which allow certain individuals, organizations to really think out of the box. And so rather than mythologizing a person, the question is how was that person or that organization able to really take on risk and even more than that, uncertainty, the real unknown? And in terms of the, if you want, myths around Silicon Valley and the entrepreneurs there, um, if you look at the system behind them, there was often a wave that they were able to literally surf. And that wave was actually created by the state. Mariana Mazzucato picks up her idea from the TED stage. Of course, the private sector does a lot, but the narrative that we've always been told is the state as important for the basics, but not really providing that sort of high-risk, revolutionary thinking out of the box. And all these sectors, from funding the internet to doing you know, the spending, but also the envisioning, the strategic vision for these investments, it was actually coming within the state. And so there's huge implications of this. First of all, by constantly depicting the state part as you know, necessary, but actually a bit boring and often a bit dangerous kind of leviathan, I think we've actually really stunted the possibility to build these public-private partnerships in a really dynamic way. Even the words that we often use to justify the P part, the public part, oh, they're both Ps, uh, with public-private partnerships is in terms of de-risking. What the public sector did in all these examples I just gave you, and there's many more, which uh, myself and other colleagues have been looking at, is doing much more than de-risking. It's kind of been taking on that risk, bring it on. It's actually been the one thinking out of the box. Um, when we think about the U.S. government, right, the U.S. government has a, a massive budget. And so when the U.S. government makes bets, invests money in um, technologies, is it really that risky? Sure it is. I mean, for every internet, there was many attempts to, you know, at other solutions that didn't then go well. So innovation in and of itself implies actually, you know, risk-taking and, you know, most attempts at innovation actually go wrong. And in fact, many innovations happen not so much by mistake, but, you know, on the way to searching for one thing, you actually discover something else. Right. So there's quite a bit of also serendipity. But the real question is whether the patience and the long-termism that a government can provide, um, you know, is that better for innovation or worse? So if you look at how venture capital is structured, it's very exit-driven. They tend to want to exit in three or five years through an IPO, an initial public offering, or a buyout. And that exit-driven model has actually really hurt the evolution of science and innovation in sectors like biotechnology. Hmm. So really, this mix of being able to think big, be mission-oriented, try to think of like the big problems of our time, whether it was going to the moon and back again in one generation, as in the 1960s, whether it's today solving, you know, really battling it out with climate change or getting the plastic out of the ocean, how to frame those problems as inspirationally as possible, use public investment to go after the problems, but especially in order to crowd in to excite other forms of investment. Yeah. So, I mean, is there a way to think about all of the technologies and innovations we interact with on a day-to-day -day basis and kind of figure out how much of the things we rely on actually started as a result of a government initiative? Well, there's definitely data out there. And I think in some cases, for example, with medicine, there's very good data. Um, and um, in the case of, again, of companies, I mean, we know, you know, Tesla, extremely innovative uh, company, but, you know, Elon Musk for his three companies, SpaceX, uh, SolarCity, and uh, Tesla received close to $5 billion U.S. dollars in the combination of subsidies, grants, guarantees, and, and other types of investments. And that data is out there. And it shouldn't be out there then to accuse someone like Elon Musk of not being innovative. He is. But, you know, admitting this massive collective and systemic and social nature of the structure around you, which then allowed you to succeed, I think should be an obligation. Yeah. 
And so kind of having that more part of the popular discourse, I think, would really change how we perceive uh, the role of government, but also the pressure on governments to be investing in those really transformative areas, which we as a society perhaps believe will be important. What what would a better system look like? I mean, if the government is funding technology that is making lots of people rich, right, um, and the government essentially is taking on the initial risk but not getting the reward from it, what would a better system look like? I mean, should the U.S. government function as a private equity firm or a venture capital firm? So the government should not act as a private equity or venture capital firm because then it would itself start to become short-termist and just think about financial return. So right. the real challenge is how to remain focused on the big problems. Again, the equivalent of the Apollo 11 kind of project today solving some of the most wicked problems of our time around health and climate. And that will entail taking risks. Taking right. risks. Why? Taking risks because you know that in order to invest in some of the technological and also sometimes organizational and social innovation that's required for these big transitions to occur, it's not easy. It's very difficult. You might and very likely will fail along the way. So all this for me means that the approach to policy and to government, you know, just has to fundamentally change to one where we admit explicitly that you're co-creating and co-shaping markets in a risk-taking way. And thus, we also have to make sure that we're governing that system in a way that actually achieves societal value. That's Mariana Mazzucato. She's an economics professor at University College London. You can see her full talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on risk this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out TED.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousie, J.C. Howard, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Katie Monteleon, and Carrie Thompson, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Kira Brown. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.